Hello. Jennifer, I spoke to some of your colleagues and they also mentioned that though a lot of young dancers have fabulous technical skill, um, there always was a maturity and grace to your dancing. Did you have a special teacher or mentor in your life that helped you develop that way? Yes, I mostly trained privately with my teacher in Southern California, Maria Lazar, and I spent a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with her um, and she was very specific with the movement but also intent behind the training and um, yeah, being very intentional with your movement and growth and work uh, on a daily basis um, and also would challenge me and all the other students to really think through, find our own corrections or find, kind of discover how we can improve a movement or a step or a dance um, and or hint at what she the correction she wanted to give but then also challenge us to analyze why that would improve and so just to be intelligent about what you actually want to create and present. It made you responsible for a lot of your own growth it seems. When did you first realize that you were a dancer, capital D, dancer? Um, I always loved moving uh, ever since I was really little. Um, I would dance around and my sister and I would always create little dances to whatever music we had. And um, so I think movement in general has always been a part of my life. Um, and I also was a gymnast and uh, ice skater. and. Um, when I knew I was a ballet dancer, I think it would be around 11 or 12 when I was fascinated just going into class every day and um, I, don't, I didn't fully realize what it meant um, that I wanted to be a professional ballerina, but I just knew I, there was a depth to ballet that just seemed like endless possibilities that I wanted to just keep going with every day, and it was, that was inspiring to me. Um, in your view, what do most dancers have in common? I'm sorry? In your view, what do most dancers have in common? There's the discipline in ballet, um, and not just coming in every day and working, but also controlling the excitement of getting on stage and having the audience and uh, that maturity to take on what they're about to do and kind of harness everything that they've thought about and worked towards um, leading up to the performance and then being able to deliver it. And, um, and that comes with discipline every day as well. Um, That'll get you far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now this season is just getting started, but let's go back to last season. What was the highlight for you? Uh, the highlight of my season uh, last year would be Rite of Spring, Yuri Pasikov's uh, premiere. Um, it was a very special process, being um, being such a big part of the creation and um, just working with Yuri so closely and it was such an amazing role to 
have the opportunity to premiere um, with the 100th anniversary and just such a historical role. Um, and then on top of that, getting promoted was, of course, a huge highlight. And yeah, I, it, it's definitely the most rewarding role that I've been able to perform. Um, uh, last month, there was an article in the New York Times about point shoes. Did anybody see that article? It's a great article, and it discussed how ballerinas might have a favorite shoemaker, how they prepare their shoes, and can you talk about your personal preference for shoes and how you break them in, or sure. tell us the secrets of your shoes. Uh, for my shoes, I've been wearing uh, Freed's for the whole time I've been in the company now, um, and for the past few years, my maker, um, his symbol is Q, and it's just a particular shape that works really well with my feet and the way I work. And um, For those, um, these shoes are handmade, yeah. and the, the makers are identified by putting an initial or something on the bottom. Yeah, they all have different symbols. There's like a crown or different letter, A or Z. or. Um, so you fall, you, you tend to gravitate towards a certain way the shoe's made, a certain maker. Yeah, they all have a slightly different whether it's shape or just if they're more tapered or a wider box or, you know, everyone's feet are very different and someone might need a much larger platform or a stronger box and some people like a very soft box and um, I have found that I really like Q. It's slightly more narrow at the toe. Um, How do you break it in? I, I take the inside shank and I cut it in half, and then um, usually I'll spray a little alcohol on the box so it can soften a bit and mold to my toes and metatarsals, and then um, there's, we have some jet glue, it's like super glues, and I'll typically put that at the very tip because for me, they tend to soften too much, so that's part of my... So the very few dancers just put on the pair of shoes and go. They normally break it in, and it's very unique to each dancer. And in the process, or that, uh, it's changed over the years. You kind of find little tweaks that you end up, like I used to cut the outside of my shoe, and now I don't do that, or just where you sew the ribbon elastic. So it's constantly modifying what you like. And How do you feel at the end of a performance? What do you do? Um, I think it depends on the performance and what you've just performed, but um, I mean, typically there's a cool down period and you still have the adrenaline, so sometimes even if you're exhausted, those are the hardest nights to get a good night's sleep. <laughs> Actually, during Rite of Spring, I don't think I slept <laughs> nearly enough just from the adrenaline and thinking through the performances and um, and I think that was probably the couple weeks that I needed the most sleep of, a, of any time um, and then there's also like stretching or it depends on the role um, some roles really take a toll on a certain area of your body and you need to take care of that so there might be some icing or um, a good amount of time there's some icing so when's the major meal of the day after a performance mm, 
I tend to split my dinner before the performance and after the performance. Um, it's hard to have too much right before the show, and then um, you don't want to eat too much right before you go to bed. But um, yeah, it's important to maintain your nutrition and energy levels. So I would say it's also spread out, and breakfast is a good solid meal, and then spreading it out throughout the day is just depending on your schedule, because sometimes we have little breaks and there's not really, you, you never really want to have a full stomach with a solid meal. So. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with San Francisco Ballet soloist Jennifer Stahl, and in a short while, we'll be able to take some questions from the audience. Now let's focus on the ballet Giselle. What role do you play in this production? This year, I will dance Myrta. Um, it will be my first time performing this role. She's the queen of the willies in the second act. Um, and in past years, I've danced uh, as a willie. The, the uh, program, your program notes in your um, program are, are fabulous. And they, uh, it does mention that the role of Myrta is technically brutal. What, do you think it's technically brutal? What makes it a difficult role to dance physically? Uh, physically, it's very, very challenging. Um, it's a lot of time on stage, and first it's just very controlled, and there's a calm, and she's a very powerful female role, and um, she's commanding the whole stage. It's her territory, and, and then it's also a lot of jumping. Um, and that's after already being on stage for so long. And so it's a very challenging role. It takes a lot of stamina. And how do you feel about d dancing it for the first time? It'll be Saturday, correct? Yes, yes, next Saturday. Um, I am very excited. I've wanted to dance this role for a very long time. And I feel very honored that I have the opportunity to dance it next week. Um, it's a special role in that, I mean, Giselle is a very beautiful ballet. I think it's just so captivating, especially the second act with the ghost-like willies and just all the imagery that's created and just the whole atmosphere that's created with the willies and the music is incredible. Um, and Myrta is just, is she there's just, such a character there. It's, there's so much depth. Well, well, talk about the character. Is she mean or is she sympathetic? Is she in this situation and she's in control of this evil situation? But Well, all the willies um, are women who have died of a broken heart or died with a broken heart. And uh, Myrta, it's not quite clear um, through some research just why she is the queen, um, whether it's because she was the first willy or was hurt the most or, um, but she had a broken heart and now she's a very strong woman, I think because of that, um, accepting what has happened to her and she's also protective of her sisterhood, this community of women who have come together and they roam the forest at night and um, they protect their space from any men that come in and um, 
and then force them to dance till their death. And they've all been hurt so badly. Um, and so, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I mean, they did actually die, but at the same time, I feel that they're healed in that way. And there's a strength. Even with the corps de ballet, you'll see they become an army and the buildup with the music. But um, I'm always very moved by the corps de ballet, especially when they come together. And it's well. Can you talk about you know, the, the willies? They are vengeful spirits of jilted maidens, and they force men to dance themselves to death. But uh, it, the patterns, the the. Can you talk about the art of dancing a willie? when you're a member of the Corps de Ballet? Yes. It's, it's so challenging, and especially when it's done well, I think the audience does, might not necessarily realize how challenging it is because it looks so unified, and they, it's, that's the hardest part, is just coming together as one to create this feeling that's going to come across and the shapes and the patterns on the stage that create that help tell the story and help with the movement of the story and um, so it's not only them focusing on their own physical lines and um, or personal lines but then creating an actual set up on stage and when it's not done well, it breaks that magic because you'll notice something isn't quite right and then your attention's drawn to that funny arm sticking out or that, that something that's not quite at the right timing or rhythm with the other five women or the other 24. Um, so it, to do it very well, can create the magic that you see. Um, what, what the most magical moment in, in the ballet for you? Is there a certain moment where you every, get the chills every time? I do love when the whole corps de ballet is in arabesques and they just have their massive crossing. Um, the music gets so intense and there's just the strength there and they're so unified. I think it shows their community and just that they've joined together and together they're more powerful and that would be one of my favorite moments. Um, well, speaking of magic, um, when Giselle was first performed in 1841, it employed some fairly recent technology that was important to creating that magical aura. Before, to light a theater, people used candles and later oil lamps, which were hot and smoky and hard to control. But by the 1840s, gas lighting was uh, widely adapted, which allowed someone sitting at a control board to uh, dim the house lights. And that's a new concept that before they couldn't dim the house lights. But with gas lighting, you can dim the house lights and then create these magical, spooky moments on stage. Um, but those gas jets were dangerous. And more than a few dancers suffered terrible burns as a result of getting their tutus too close to these, these gas flames. And uh, so I'm very happy you don't have to deal with this, Jennifer. No, but, but the girls do have to be careful backstage with the heaters still. Oh. <laughs> That's always. But your, 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 your ancestors had to put up with a, a lot. 
<clears throat> and now in 2014, it's great fun to go to the SF Ballet uh, website and, and listen to the podcasts and you uh, watch videos and, and um, but just like in 1841, uh, people still want to go to a live performance. And that's why we're all here. Um, and I was wondering why, Jennifer, you think that is. Why, instead of watching a video of Giselle, do people want to come to the theater and see it live? Well, personally, what I have realized, um, so being in the Corte Ballet for the past productions of Giselle, I've, I was on stage every night. So I couldn't watch it from the front, even for rehearsals. And um, you know, the Corte Ballet is up there every night. So, uh, And this year, now being um, just working on Myrta and having a lot of studying time and watching the other cast dance. And um, so before, I, I would mostly watch it on video because I wouldn't see it from the audience's perspective. And you mean video it's backstage? Yeah, video backstage yeah, or yeah. just archives and things um, or other companies performing and watching. and. It's almost hard to explain just the difference of everything's ten times more real and powerful, and um, the music is there, and you can see it in the steps. And to actually, I mean, 3D is just so much better than <laughs> than a video. Um, there's just a lot that you're watching someone tell the story and dance these roles and. Uh, perform these steps and right in front of your eyes and it's you just don't know what could happen or it's going to happen and live theater is just very it's special it's you can capture it on video but to actually be there and experience it as it's happening with the live music is very special Sometimes I feel, I don't know if you guys do, but when all 3,000 of us are in this theater and you, you look out, sometimes I, I just kind of look around me and I realize we are all focusing on one thing. And there's kind of this neat sense of humanity, of being human, which you can forget about, you know, with your tickling around with your um, uh, electronic devices. But that, but that humanity and also a kinesthetic connections you might have. Like when somebody soars through the air, you, you kind of... Feel that as well, you know, in your body. No matter how old you are, you kind of feel it yourself. So it's very human, as you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, how do you like to fill your time when you're not dancing? Hmm. Um, I really enjoy creative projects or like different crafts or having something um, sort of that. I don't know whether it's cooking or painting or um, maybe, I don't know, my good friend got married last year, so I was a big part of creating the invitations and um, creating different parties for her and setting up the theme and um, decorations or um, that kind of thing. Or I recently started taking violin lessons again. I had taken when I was very little, like six years old, and then a little bit in elementary school, and then I've always have just loved the instrument so much, and um, 
And so I found a great teacher this year, this summer, and got an instrument. And um, so a little bit of practicing that on the side. And so that's been really nice to fill some time. Now we can take some questions from the audience. If you could help me by making your questions short, because I'll need to repeat them for everyone to hear. But does anybody have some questions? Well, right here. Is there a challenging role that you haven't done that you'd love to do in the future, though you're not really ready for right now? Is there a challenging role in the future that you would like to do, even though you might not be ready for it right now? Hmm. I mean, I there are a lot of roles that I would love to do in the future. Um, I don't know if I would really name one specifically. Um, okay. It really depends. I feel like every year I feel like I grow and change the dancer. And um, Mirta has been one in the past years that I have been looking forward to and also knowing that it's in our rep. Um, so. That's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> Very diplomatic. Um, another question. I guess I could throw out. <laughs> other questions. How about uh, with, with the red? Uh, Um, you've spoken of your uh, ballet shoes. After you've broken them in, how long do they last? It really depends on what you're working on and what your schedule is like, just um, the amount of work you have. Um, some roles call for your shoes can be maybe softer, or then maybe there's some potatoes where you're on point just turning and taking your foot <laughs> over and over, and they break much faster. Uh, typically, I would say a few days, um, also depending if you have enough in rotation, sometimes your shoes can harden back up or if they're not just completely killed, um, they can sometimes be used after maybe a week if they've had time to dry out. And, and uh, re retail, I think it's yeah. 80 to 100 bucks per pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. Very expensive yeah. point shoes. And if they only last a day or two, now you know why your ticket price is expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta pay for these shoes. Yeah. Uh, let's have one more question. During the off season of the ballet, where are you and what are you doing? I do love to travel, so uh, typically I take advantage of our time off um, and take a trip. This past summer I went to Istanbul and um, and then also if we're completely off um, there's still the responsibility to maintain your training and uh, being ready to come back for the season um, and then yeah when we're not performing in the theater we're still working um, a good chunk of the year and preparing for the season. Or on tour. So, yeah, or, um, and I'm lucky that my family is somewhat close by in Southern California, so I'll usually take time to go and spend with them. And Well, folks, uh, our time is up. 
I want to thank my guest, Jennifer Stahl, and thank you all for joining us today. Let's give a hand for Jennifer. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And you can listen to podcasts of these Meet the Artist interviews on learn, and learn even more about our uh, website at sfballet.org. Thank you.